Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, happy Monday, by the way. If you have your Bibles, please open Exodus chapter 17. Uh, this is a section of scripture where I think we start seeing um, the Israelites begin to see God's provision, but yet at the same time seem to forget that as well. Uh, just the context of what's going on in this book, uh, chapter 15 of Exodus. This was, I guess, really 14 is when the, the 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 huge miraculous event of the Israelite crossing the Red Sea happens. There's, uh, it's a, this is that they were on dry land, which is important because it wasn't like a muddy path, as some of the liberal scholars tend to think that it wasn't just like oh there wasn't like a there, there's no way the water would have parted. It was just this little muddy path that they happened to walk on, and then a wave just hit the whole bunch of Egyptians. No, this is actually a dry land that they were able to walk on, meaning that this took hours to, to take place, and which also means that with the hours that uh, has happened, that they actually have all this time to cherish God and His goodness and His power, and just remembering His faithfulness. Chapter 15, they were singing of that. They're singing praises, but right after the song, it seems like they needed, you know, they saw God deliver them through the Red Sea, and then they became, uh, I guess, really thirsty, and then they start doubting God and His goodness, and they start wondering, well, it would have been better if we died in Egypt. Um, and the Lord provides them with water, Chapter 16, again, they're grumbling and grumbling and grumbling about what they don't have, what they wanted food, and how Egypt was so much better when they have, when they're able to have like pots of meat and all of these different types of things. They complained and complained, and God provided again in the forms of manna. If you remember last week, I said manna is what basically what that word means is what is it? So, this is the whatchamacallit food. Um, and they, the Lord sustained them. And at the end of chapter 16, it says that they sustained for 40 years. So, this is something that the Lord just kept providing for. Um, it was a supernatural kind of bread in that it um, there's no, it seems to be like it, it 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 just gets spoiled the next day. And if you have more, or you gather more than you need, then it gets spoiled. But except for the one that's inside the Ark of the Covenant, those, the one inside those little um, uh, omer is this unique one that's supposed to be a testimony of God's faithfulness to the Israelites. Now, when we get to chapter 17, we see there's really this question that really comes up. It's like, is God sufficient? In fact, sufficiency is actually one of the biggest reasons why people doubt God and His Word. Do they truly believe that God is sufficient? We are in a time where it's not that we, we claim in a Christian circle that we believe in the sufficiency, no, no, the inerrancy of God's Word. We think that it's infallible. But yet, for some reason, there's a disconnect between that and its sufficiency. Uh, meaning, sufficiency means that it is enough. Everything that we need, that we have, it's enough. And somehow, uh, it seems that like people deny the sufficiency of Scripture, which in turn is their denial of God and His character. When you see the woke church talking about how they need to look at other books and learn from other people outside the Bible, what they're saying essentially is that the Bible does not have all of the answers pertaining to the life of godliness. But the Bible does have every answer. They just don't know it enough to be able to discern that, to be able to say things like that. And I think, sadly, this has crept into the church and people have bought into it. There's a lot of people that claim that we need to read certain types of literature in order for us to 
uh, know what the church and fulfill the Great Commission, and you realize then that they don't really know what the Great Commission is truly about. But now, now instead of criticizing other churches, you need to ask yourself, do you believe that God is sufficient? Do you believe that God is sufficient? Now, it is very easy during a time when things are easy to say that, of course, I would believe that God is sufficient in all things. But it gets really hard the moment things get taken away from us or no, or we run out of certain resources. Then do you, do you really believe that God is sufficient? And this is what we see here in this chapter. The Israelites are going to be tested again, and they are going to doubt God and his sufficiency. And as we go through this, don't look at them as them being foolish or other people. Think of yourself being potentially in this situation and how would you really respond. Verse 7, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by the stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of Yahweh, and camped in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? For the people thirsted there uh, for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now again, this is similar to what they said, in fact, in chapter 16, verse 3. Um, you know, they're just grumbling about, like, looking back at Egypt and thinking, like, oh, we should have just died in Egypt. Or did you just take us out of Egypt just so, so that we can die? Verse 4, so Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do with those people? A little more, and they will stone me. It's funny because he's like, okay, if, we, if they, if they're just a little bit more thirsty, a little longer, then they're going to get killed. Which again, I don't think that's the wisest move because you know why would you kill the guy that's going to talk to the Lord? But again, these people and their foolishness thinks that like grumbling against Moses will solve all the problems. They think that grumbling Moses is only to grumbling to Moses, but really they're grumbling against the Lord. And this is something that they fail to see. And this is a lesson for us. Whenever we grumble in our situation, we're not actually grumbling to the person that we're grumbling to or to ourselves. We're ultimately grumbling against the Lord. Verse 5, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff, which you, you struck the Nile and go. Again, the this, this staff is very important. It goes all the way back into the burning bush. Um, and up until now, this is a sign of leadership. Behold, I'll stand before you on the rock at Horeb. Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named his Massa and Meribah because the quarrel and the sons, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh, saying, "Is the Lord among us or not?" Now again, this is a very significant portion because I don't know how this looks like. It's probably some sort of fire hydrant or geyser or something. Because if you imagine feeding or you know, giving water for two, about two million people, it can't just be like a little water faucet. It has to be something that quenches the thirst quickly because two million people to feed is going to be a lot of time. So whatever this looks like, whether it's just like a gusher, like a geyser, or again, or just like a giant fire hydrant, uh, they were able to get provision from the Lord. They cried out to the Lord, or Moses cried out. They cried out to Moses and Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord provided for them. Now, this, again, it's very easy for us to say that when when things are easier but it's harder when those things are being tested now we live in a time and an age where uh 
yeah, it's possible that our rights will be taken away and it's, and it's going to be hard to be a Christian. And it's those moments you have to really, especially moments now, you need to resolve in your heart that God is going to provide for you. It may not be the way that you expect. It may not even be the way that you want or prefer. But God will care for you because he is all sufficient. You can trust in him. Continuing on, verse 8. And Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Now, this is significant because it's literally the first time that Israel went to war. Remember, the Israelites weren't soldiers. Moses may have some, potentially, some sort of background in, in military affairs because he's in part, he was part of Pharaoh's household. But he didn't train these people. This wasn't like the Mulan scene, like, I'll make a man out of you and teaching them how to like hit rocks and grab fish with their hands or anything like that. This is... They have, they, I mean, these are just like normal, regular people with their like shepherd rods and sticks and everything. And then these are going against people with like swords and an army. So the only thing they really have to rely on and to trust in is the Lord. Verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose, uh, choose men for us and go out fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told them. He fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up to Israel prevail, and when his hands down, Amalek prevailed. Now, we don't know what that means. Like, does that mean that people were dying, that Israel were dying? Uh, it, I don't know. I, I hold to view that they maybe not have died, but they might have, might have like, lost some territory. Or Joshua's like, okay, we got to retreat, and they just ran back. But whatever, it just seems like a really bizarre situation where Moses' hands up and uh, they won, but when he put it down, when he got weak, when his hands go down, um, yeah, they uh, they start losing. Verse 12, but Moses' hand, hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron her supported his hand, one on, uh, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hand were steady until the sun set. Now, I don't know why that works, why that's not considered cheating, but it is, it works. So uh, whatever, for whatever reason, that's uh, what it took for them to win. Verse 13, so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this in the book of him as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, you might be reading this and think, hey, but they're still in the Bible right now. This is basically referring to like, the future like in the future there won't be any people from this group it's not to say that they won't exist or that you will have zero knowledge of them because it's in the bible um, but it's like blot out the memory of amalek meaning that there's nothing there's no trace of their history anymore uh, you won't find an amalek restaurant or amalek city or amalek nation because they're all gone Verse 15, Moses built an altar and named it Yahweh is my banner. And he said, Yahweh has sworn, and uh, the, uh, Yahweh has sworn, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So this is a little bit of foreshadowing here where at some point the Israelites are going to have a lot of fights with Amalek, and, but they will always prevail. They will always prevail because God said so. So this is a real slight prophecy here. Um, and you have to understand too, in the context of this book, this was written for the for Moses to the Israelites before they cross the Jordan River, before Josh, before Moses was going to die and Joshua was going to take the reign. So this is to reaffirm for the people that Joshua is going to be their leader, and that you could trust Joshua. In fact, he was the only one that actually survived 
of Joshua and Caleb were the only two actually to survive the first and took the second generation in. The second generation will have no clue who this about the situation. Maybe they were born at the time, but they, they it wasn't like it was something in recent memory. So this was intended for them to to realize that Joshua was there, um, and you know, in this promise that the lot that the Yahweh made with them. So. What does this, how does this apply to us? Well, I have two questions. The main question I have asked earlier in the beginning was this. Do you believe that God is sufficient? And the natural question, you say yes. And the question, how do we, how do you know that God is sufficient? Uh, and we're going to answer that question in two ways. We're going to answer one on Wednesday and one on Friday. On Wednesday, we're going to answer that God sustains his people. That God will sustain his people. That's how we know that God is sufficient. That he will always sustain those that are his. And the second, how do we know that God is sufficient is that God supports his people. God will always support his people. Um, in the end, if we're faithful to him, if we trust in his sufficiency, he will always sustain us and he'll always support us. May this truth encourage us this week as we think about just the, the weird world that we live in in America. And it seems like things are going to get worse, but we can always trust that God is sufficient. I trust that this is helpful and that it can edify you into in your walk with the Lord. Thanks for listening. See you guys Wednesday. Thank you.